The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I'm with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to introduce our speakers. You've got very brief bios on them. I am not going to recite them. This is obviously Jeff Wasserstrom and Jiang Fan. I think you can tell who's who. Um, we're going to start with some history, then present, and then open it up for discussion. So I will turn it over to both of you. I thought I would begin with a little bit of history, wearing my hat as a historian. Um, and shamelessly plugging here the Oxford Illustrated History of Modern China that I edited, um, which ends, begins with history and ends with journalism, because the final chapter, and it's by Ian Johnson, a wonderful journalist, about the presence. He wrote about the presence of the past in contemporary China. And a lot of what I've been interested in throughout my career, including now, is figuring out how knowing something about what has happened before can help us understand what's happening in China now, or also in US relations with China and connections with China. So that's the, the little bit I'll say before we get to um, Xi and Trump, and <laughs> is to look back to a time when there was another American president who won an election in a year ending with 16, and had a lot of Chinese fans who admired him for traits that they felt were lacking in their own leaders. Um, in the way that one, one of the reasons I think Trump has been somewhat attractive or was somewhat attractive to some Chinese was because of his uncensored, blunt talking that seems so different from the carefully managed statements of Chinese leaders. Anyway, the, the president I'm interested in who won an election in a different 16 year was Woodrow Wilson. When Woodrow Wilson won the 1916 election, he was a bookish incumbent Democrat so completely different from the current president-elect. <laughs> but he had a lot of fans in China. And he had these fans because at that point, China was ruled by uh, boorish warlords. So a bookish former president of Princeton seemed to Chinese intellectuals in particular um, a very attractive figure. He had many Chinese fans, including a young man named Mao Zedong, who had not yet discovered um, Marxism. So what did the Chinese who admired Woodrow Wilson admire him for? They admired him because China at that point was very weak, and they thought Woodrow Wilson would be a protector for a weak China. He was talking a lot about the, the era being one of self-determination, national self-determination. His stock rose very high in 1918 when he gave a speech celebrating uh, self-determination and saying that the future would be an age beyond empires. And so Chinese um, intellectuals, uh, knowing that there were various foreign powers that were bullying and buying their way into control of more and more parts of China, thought here was a strong American president who would help them stand up to places like Japan and would push back for them. So here's the other thing that Woodrow Wilson has in common with Donald Trump. He did something that suddenly lost him a lot of his Chinese fan base. This was backing the Treaty of Versailles that gave former German territories in China uh, to Japan rather than returning them to China. And suddenly there were a lot of ex-Woodrow Wilson fans in China. 
So flash forward to the present, and we see a Donald Trump who, for a time, had a significant fan base within China, in part because of traits that were different from China's current leaders, perhaps. Um, but the main reason why I think many Chinese were, were, at least some, were drawn to Trump when he was campaigning against Hillary Clinton was that they thought that Trump would be so focused on domestic issues, um, building that wall, and doing other things within the country that he would leave alone a strong China that wanted to continue to assert itself more on the global stage. So I think looking from 1916 to 2016, not that a group like this needs to be reminded of, of this, it shows the night and day difference between China's place in the world. In 1916, it was a weak China that thought, wouldn't it be nice if the United States became more involved across the Pacific and maybe would push back against Japan? Whereas now the thought was Hillary Clinton would certainly be pushing China on issues such as human rights, but um, Donald Trump, despite what he was saying on the campaign trail, might not be all that interested in China uh, once if he, if he was elected and might leave a strong China alone to go about its business. Now, of course, just as Woodrow Wilson with the Treaty of Versailles suddenly lost a lot of Chinese fans, Trump with, some, with a phone call and then especially some tweets and then what he said on the television news yesterday about the One, chi one China uh, policy being a bargaining chip that could be up for grabs on the table suddenly has a lot of ex-Chinese fans. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, uh, thanks, Jeff. I mean, I think um, just looking at, you know, so much of the conversation about this election has been about, you know, especially when it comes to Sino, the American relationship has been about what China sees in Trump and what, you know, what, how Trump um, plans to evolve the Sino-American you know, relationship when he's in office. And many people have asked why Trump would ever be attractive to the Chinese. And you know, it's not clear that he, you know, had unanimous support. But certainly there were voices in, you know, um, on in the Chinese social media and in um, in Chinese media that seemed to suggest that he could be a refreshing possibility. And uh, that's, you know, for many of my Friends been very, very baffling and frightening, <laughs> and uh, I think, um, and I just, th I, I think three, you know, uh, three reasons why Trump, at least before the, um, before the, the, the phone call, um, seemed. <laughs> I mean, I feel like you know the the, the era is going to be marked by that phone call. What we you know before what happened before and what happened after is that. Um, for many, uh, for many Chinese, especially an older generation of Chinese, there is still a sense of Trump as, success, as a successful businessman. And uh, we here, you know, can really, you know, may very much take issue with that. Um, but in China, there is this perception, and because the, the, the Trump brand is quite well known and imprinted on, you know, many things, there's this idea that if nothing else, he has been an enormously, um, you know, well-regarded businessman. That he's built this built this empire of, um, you know, hotels and casinos, and that he knows how to 
you know, he knows how to, um, uh, you know, construct things. And for China, I think for a lot of, you know, especially for, for, for Chinese of the past 30 years, when there's been so, when there's been such a, you know, um, a flurry of construction and this, um, and this kind of great desire to um, build, you know, a, a better, more modern, advanced China. The idea that, you know, this is a man who gets things done has a certain level of, um, you know, has a certain level of, um, you know, attraction. And, uh, and also his TV personality. I think, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think China perhaps has a greater tolerance for hit, for that sort of shtick. I mean, there's <laughs> um, there's uh, there's uh, you know a lot of these um, reality TV shows are well regarded. Um, he uh, his uh, you know the the idea that Trump presents of himself as um, you know the entrepreneur has um, you know has. Uh, you know, traction in um, in China, and many uh, of my Chinese friends have certainly said, "Well, you know, he's able. You know, he was able to, you know, beyond however many you know seasons of The Apprentice. You know, I always watched, um, and uh, and he has hotels all over the world. I mean, this is a guy who really, um, you know, despite what you you know liberal Americans say, he you know he he gets things done, and." Um, that appeal, I think that is very appealing to the Chinese pragmatism, you know, sense of pragmatism that, you know, uh, no matter his, um, you know, uh, his, uh, uh, you know, locker room talk, he is, um, you know, he has concrete power. And that kind of leads to the second, um, the second idea that Trump has pushed, that he is against political correctness. Um, I think political correctness for, you know, in, 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 in China is still, you know, a budding inchoate concept, but many people, especially I think of the older generation, have a natural, you know, um, are, are have a natural sense of allergy to it because it seems like just you know these uppity Western liberals trying to make a fuss when there doesn't need to be a fuss, and then I think that because so much, you know, China has been through so much in the past half a century, just to you know, just for kind of the minimal most minimal survival and then had to push very very hard to be economically um, at where it is so when there's talk of you know political correctness of you know inclusion and especially for society that has been um, homogenous for you know 2,000 years the idea of you know you know including all these you know immigrants and you know you know what, what are their value I mean I think it's very very confusing so um, for many Chinese, Trump's, you know, straight talk uh, seems to be, you know, the way, it seems again to be a way to proceed where you don't, where, where, where for the Chinese there's much less, you know, rhetorical confusion. And, um, and that leads to kind of the third, you know, my third point um, of why Trump might be attractive is that, you know, the, you know, when we got down to the wire, it was between, you know, Hillary and Clinton, and Hillary hasn't had you know the best Hillary hasn't always been very popular with the with the Chinese, as we know from the mid '90s. You know, with her push for human rights and um, and uh, feminism, and uh, for again for the older generation, there is this sense of you know Hillary isn't you know isn't for China. Hillary doesn't want China to succeed. Hillary, you know, with the you know with with her continuing the Obama pivot, this sense that she wants to contain China and 
yes, you know, um, uh, Trump, you know, poses a lot of, you know, uncertainties, but maybe someone else will, you know, as Jeff said, um, you know, want to focus on other things, will be less, um, will be, uh, you know, less um, keen on trying to, uh, you know, trying to um, keep China uh, from growing. So I think for all, you know, for all those reasons, Trump is, um, you know, Trump for the Chinese uh, did seem like, you know, a candidate that could uh, possibly, you know, uh, um, uh, predict better things for, for China. Now with the, you know, and, and, and you know, bef again, before the phone call, um, I think with a lot of higher, you know, level officials in, 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 in China, and, you know, perhaps rightly so, there's this sense that Trump is a child. He is, um, you know, he is, uh, you know, an adolescent who hasn't gotten control of his own temper, of his own emotions, and is so ignorant about his ignorance that um, he will, you know, easily kind of bow to flattery, or he will, you know, um, you know, pull back his electioneering talk, um, and he's vain in that way. So I think, you know, some, you know, this is my, you know, this is this is um, kind of uh, this is my thinking about it anyway. That some Chinese officials are really rubbing kind of their hands together and thinking this is an opportunity. I mean, this guy's an idiot, um, and we could really manipulate him um, to our uh, to our to our end. But um, you know, as the phone call now suggests. There's a real volatility to an idiot, and he does um, he uh, and he bends both ways, you know. As much as um, you know, his his decisions are unpredictable, and uh, his actions. I mean, you know, more importantly, his actions are um, especially unpredictable. And uh, for the Chinese, I think for you know, um, for 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 uh, uh, years. That is a great source of fear. That when you don't, when you cannot, when you don't have state, you know, the Chinese prize stability over all else. And when you have an uh, uh, an actor kind of in the midst who is constantly lobbing these bombs, um, you just don't know where it's going to hit. And I think um, you know the 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 Taiwan call gives us um, uh, kind of an, an, an I guess uh, a, a taste of what's about to come. Great, thank you. Neither of you said much of anything about C. Where does he fit in? <laughs> well, I'd let, let me just say as a preface that it's, it's a great pleasure for me to share a stage with Jia Yang. Uh, and I think the New Yorker, uh, which is always a wonderful magazine, has really distinguished itself in, um, in the past year, in the uh, past couple of years, in the way it's covered both Xi Jinping and Donald Trump. And Jia Young is somebody I've been reading lately to uh, follow about um, some Chinese reactions uh, to Trump and the election. And Evan Osnos at The New Yorker has written incredibly powerfully about Xi Jinping and about um, Donald Trump and bringing, I think, some of, some of the um, sensibility honed by covering um, China at a time when there were leaders in control of China who were very dismissive of the press and tried to control and critical of the foreign press as biased and seeing some of these kind of parallels coming over in the way that um, 
Donald Trump talks about the New York Times is sometimes not that different from how uh, either Xi Jinping talks about the New York Times or would like to talk about the New York Times <laughs> and so forth. Um, there was, and, and just segue here to more about uh, Xi Jinping, there was also something very funny on the Chinese internet that went around on social media that was called The East is Now Orange. And it was an image of Donald Trump superimposed on, on Mao's face. Mm. And I think some of probably, I mean, I, I, there were, there were I, wonderful things in everything Jia Yang said, but I think another part of at least, and this might get us to a parallel, is there's this, there's this fascination with a strongman leader in many, uh, in many parts of the world across much of Asia, but not just Asia. We see this also um, in, uh, in other places. And I think part of the similarity between um, Trump and Xi Jinping is this, this idea of a, a claims to be a singular figure who can um, get things done and make the country great again. I mean, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream ideas is partly, if you can think, going back to a period of past uh, Chinese greatness and reasserting it. He's going back to the um, to the pre-opium war, uh, early 19th century or late 18th century of, of the Qing, um, as the Economist had a cover that was party like it's 1793, I think was it, where Xi Jinping dressed up in Qing regalia sort of uh, as a new kind of emperor. But I think, you know, if we think about some of the traits, Xi Jinping is the most, um, the most imperial in some ways of recent Chinese leaders. There is some effort to kind of capture, uh, to connect with part of Mao as, as the strong man of the past. Um, there's also an effort, I think another kind of similarity is Xi Jinping, while, um, while a strong central figure and, and a, a complete product of the Chinese establishment and surrounded by members of you know, establishment um, political figures there, is trying to connect with a kind of populism, even in a place without um, popular elections, through an anti-corruption drive, which he's claiming is a kind of way to shake up that establishment. And if you know, if there are parallels, I think between the China Dream statements of Xi Jinping and the, the Make America Great Again, there's also the anti-corruption drive being really tough on rooting out this evil has some of the elements of Trump in his drain the swamp mm -hmm. phase, mm -hmm. in which he still would like to be seen as both somebody who's um, purging part of that establishment, but also then appointing to cabinet positions people who are very much, often very much of the establishment. Mm -hmm. uh, Xi Jinping is going out this thoroughgoing, um, he would claim, anti-corruption drive, but people of um, close close to him are being spared from it. So I think that's, that's this odd way. Now I think there'll be a lot about these two, uh, about the tensions between uh, Trump and Xi um, beyond the phone call to the most recent things about um, the one China policy being up for grabs. There'll be a lot about the butting of heads and the kind of tensions. But there, that shouldn't blind us to the homologies between these kinds of things including the autocratic tendencies. And just bouncing off what Jeff said, I think there's a, I mean, I think this is a very interesting moment in, um, when we look at both, uh, you know, American society and Chinese society in the sense that, you know, 
both um, you know both countries are trying to really get a sense of the fabric of you know their respective societies, and there's I think a fear that somehow the leadership is losing grip on what you know what exactly their society you know is made up of, and you know what are the you know different tiers and where you know where. Um, where the problem areas lie, and I, you know, starting, you know, with Trump. I mean, I think so much of why this um, election was, you know, such a shock to me and so many of my um, colleagues, and I think perhaps many of you here, is that, you know, this, um, you know, the, the the resentments of, you know, the rural working class kind of came to the surface in a way that nobody suspected, and um, that, and that, you know, despite. You know, certainly what you know the New Yorker reported and what other many mainstream media outlets um, reported that um, there was an oversight that we somehow um, did not see. You know, what a majority of Americans, at least those you know, or at least a good, um, a very good, uh, uh, sizable fraction of Americans, um, what they wanted and what they um, fear and what their grievances are. In China, um, in a similar way. There's been so much growth and development and push for, um, you know, prosperity that at this particular moment, um, when you know she has been, you know, this is, you know, he, this is, you know, he's not exactly a new uh, 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 leader anymore. But I think there is that rising fear of, you know, what is the Chinese middle class that is coming up? Um, what exactly, you know, and with the Chinese focus on stability and their fear of any kind of, um, you know, as we've learned from, you know, Tiananmen and just kind of other uprisings, their fear of any kind of unexpected um, uprisings. There's this sense of, you know, wanting to issue a prophylactic, of wanting really to, um, you know, Basically, not ha not not happen. You know, not 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 reprise in China what has happened with the Trump election here. So I think in order to do that, you really um, the Chinese uh, Xi is thinking. Well, you know, what can I do to really kind of keep, um, you know, kind of keep on track. You know, the 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 you know, the contentment of the people and make sure that it doesn't channel, you know, that, that resentments or, you know, bitternesses do not channel themselves toward a political uprising. And, uh, and I think this is a moment when because of so much, because of the economic growth in China and the, um, the, 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 so much of the, you know, related social problems that have come up because of the pace of economic growth. Um, there's a, a great anxiety about not having as firm a grasp of Chinese society as the leadership would like. So I think this is a really interesting moment, you know, um, to be looking at both, uh, you know, Chinese, both American society and uh, Chinese society. And I think one of the contrasts if you think about, you know, where um, the two countries are going is, you know, Trump is very much advocating for, you know, protectionist economic policies and also greater isolationism, you know, that the country should, you know, um, stop interfering, you know, in global affairs, of global affairs and come back to itself. There's this, you know, this sense that, oh, we need to make sure that, you know, our, um, uh, you know, mid 
uh, Midwest workers are kind of they have jobs and that they are content and uh, kind of that's you know that's sort of the, the and, and you know with his cabinet post kind of this you know this insurgence of white identity you know like you know celebrate you know the 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 the, 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 the <laughs> celebrate kind of the mainstream and kind of the the, the, the homogeneous uh, you know the homogeneous nature of American society and in China I think there's you know, China has suffered from the opium wars, from isolationism. It knows that it really, you know, it was on the brink of death when it looked, was overly inward and only, you know, um, uh, cared about kind of what was happening within its borders without realizing that um, uh, uh, Europe and America was, you know, gaining significant strength. So I think for China, the push in terms of identity is outward. You know, that's why it wants you know a greater presence in Asia. That's why it wants you know greater ties with you know Africa, and it wants to exert itself outward. So I think you know you see kind of one kind of shrinking the U.S. kind of shrinking back into itself, at least under you know the Trump. You know, I know that probably many of us here don't agree with that, but at least under the Trump um, leadership, and for Xi, you know, wanting to keep domestic. Um, wanting to keep domestic um, affairs stable enough that then China can kind of expand outward and really kind of reclaim what the Chinese have always believed that it is the Middle Kingdom, that it still is, you know, in the middle of the world in a very, um, you know, kind of significant and superior sense. So I think that contrast is really interesting. Just as a, a side note, you could say China at the moment is saying don't associate us associate us with a wall, associate us with a road, so road right. at the same moment when Trump's saying, think about the wall, the wall. Right, 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 right. No, the, the wall is sort of, you know, very fitting in that sense. All right. We can open it up. Does anybody have questions or comments? Marty, keep it short and identify yourself, please. Okay. <laughs> um, who am I? Uh, Martin Rivlin, Columbia, and CUNY, I guess. All right, I'm going to be my usual iconoclastic self, but be very short. All right, agreeing with much of what you both said, I'll just make two points. One, that I would wonder if the Chinese security services, or the ones who are supposed to know things, really have the same opinion or not, and how much they're influencing Xi. The second point is, well, agreeing with your contrast and what's going on, I'm, shall we say, kind of not nauseated, but pathetized in that I see the level of leadership in both cases as, shall we say, not something I would wish for under the worst circumstances I can think of, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so the security, sir, I want, we don't know. I mean, one of, one of the things that I think is always um, a challenge with, with grappling with, with um, with China, with um, the Chinese Communist Party leadership, is that for all the, the changes that have gone on with the um, intertwinement and um, engagement of the world, it's still largely a black box when we get to the point of trying to figure out what's actually going on in Zhongnanhai and what's being thought about. I mean, it does seem to me that there must have always been mixed feelings about Trump just because of the sort of desire for predictability okay. on the one hand. And so even if the pivot and, you know, even if there was a presumption that Hillary Clinton would be, when it came to China, more of what they've seen under Obama, 
there must have been a mixed feeling of uh, not liking some of that, but knowing exactly what it was and wanting to have that kind of predictability uh, as opposed as opposed to the other. It's it's interesting, I think, just, just thinking about this, how many of the terms we've been using or the things that we've been thinking about, and I think this is something about the trends in the world in general, how many things actually could could go to left or right, or could be applied to left or right. And even when I, when I talked about that contrast between 1916 and 2016, one of the things that was very appealing about um, Americans, not, I'm not thinking now of Wilson, but about um, Dewey, who was so popular in China, was his philosophy of pragmatism mm -hmm. and this sort of admiration. And pragmatism is something that can be associated with liberal values, mm -hmm or it can be associated with um, anti-liberal values, can be associated with kind of making the trains run on time, is how we, we put it with the, um, when it skews to the right, but also this kind of just flexibility mm -hmm. can, that can be liberal. Um, and other things, also clearly the populist impulse, the idea of presenting oneself as caring about the ordinary, um, the ordinary person, which is something that Xi Jinping has been trying to mm -hmm. do certainly, and mm -hmm. that Trump did. There's something else that can either have a, a left or a right, a right phase for it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of ordinary people, identify oh, I'm sorry, uh, Jamie Fleischman uh, from Jewish Chinese Cultural Connection, and one area where, you know, despite the politics of the last eight years or however long you want to look back, that it's been pretty successful between China, I would say, is on people-to-people -people relations, and especially you look at um, academia and the amount of Chinese students coming here to study abroad. So I'm wondering what you think in the next four years, regardless of what the politics looks like, what do you think people-to-people -people relations might look like, and what do you think that these kind of groups should be doing, especially if the politics get more, um, if there's more tension between the two countries at the top level? That's a great question, but maybe the National Committee. <laughs> I, I think... I, I guess what I would say is that this is one of the many examples of things in U.S.-China relations that is important to um, do without illusions. And I think, so the illusions that, that need to be jettisoned are the idea of a kind of um, automatic trend line that I think um, Americans in particular sometimes had. That if only more Chinese came to America they would go back to China automatically having a positive image of the United States and being more questioning of the authoritarianism they found at home. And that sometimes happens. There are lots of examples of that. But there are also examples of some of the most uh, hardline nationalist voices in China now are people who've studied um, in the US. And I think at the moment, even before now, some of what could happen would be if you came to the United States from China, um, you would hear really sometimes very vicious things said about China and the Chinese in the media. And if you were raised in a system where if something's on television, at some level it represents the views of the government, and then you saw somebody on television talking in very vituperative ways about China, it was possible to go back and think that's what is really uh, the feeling there. Even if on that a later show you had somebody talking about how that was so so wrong and misguided, mm -hmm. and the op-ed pages of American newspapers similarly 
you simply don't have these contrastive opinion pieces in mm -hmm. People's Daily. Mm -hmm. So if something's in People's Daily, at some level, it must represent something. So, so that was already a challenge. Mm -hmm. And now I think if you see um, the, the, how much coarser American discourse has become mm -hmm. and is likely um, to remain, that's gonna, that's gonna be a real problem. And also I think the, I was getting, getting back to this idea of sort of how getting things done thing. I think there's been a lot of damage done to the US image within China before, before this election. Things like the government shutdowns just played incredibly badly in, in China as other places as a sign of a, a system that wasn't working. So when it comes to people to people, I, I think they're still, it's still one of the best tools we have, one of, the, one of the things that has the most potential for good. But I think it's also important to realize that it's not an automatic thing. And there's a, a lot depends on the quality of the interactions mm -hmm. and the quality of the experience that Chinese have in America and, and that somehow when people from the United States go to China, they get a rich enough experience that they come back not simply reinforcing stereotypes, mm -hmm. negative and illusorily positive, but actually I think also troubling. If people come back from um, uh, a carefully managed tour to China and um, believe that the Chinese system now is, now I'll finally answer part of Marty's question, if they come back having drunk the Kool-Aid of thinking that China is a meritocratic society where the best automatically rise to the top, that's not helpful either because that's not what's happening in China now at all levels, certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything Jeff has said. I think, um, but I, I, and I certainly, um, you know, a while back I was looking at um, Chinese student organizations here at, you know, at, at U.S. universities, and to my surprise, um, there was a sense that somehow Chinese students, you know, you, you think of this exchange as, you know, this you know, opening up to a different culture, um, but many student uh, organizations, Chinese student organizations and higher institutions, because students come when they're, you know, some are, uh, you know, 18 or even, you know, grad school students, um, already have a pretty fully formed uh, sense of themselves. Many of them tend to gravitate, you know, toward each other, and they, um, I think because they're in the U.S., have a, even, you know, have a heightened sense of their Chineseness than when they're in China. So, um, so you know, ironically, they, you know, they feel more Chinese here than ever, and um, sometimes that kind of sense of virulent nationalism um, tends to assert itself. Um, Conversely, I do think that exchange is, you know, healthy, and it's always, um, you know, it, it happens to different degrees. It happens depend, depending on how, you know, long you're there and where you are and how open you are as an individual to um, being in a foreign place. But, you know, the last, I was in China, you know, twice this year, and um, just, uh, you know, when I wasn't reporting, just talking to, you know, ordinary people, I did, you know, I was really surprised that even in 2016, because you know, in, in I was in Shanghai both those times, and you know, kind of you know, China is probably most um, uh, you know one of China's most developed cities. There is still that aversion or um, suspicion of um, non-Chinese people and what their 
tendencies might be and what their culture might be like. I mean, there's, and especially in China, um, there's, I think, a you know, great fear of what you don't know. And I, you know, that, you know, many Chinese, you know, especially the older Chinese, I think, uh, you know, are, 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 are seen as quite, can be quite racist, especially against kind of the other minorities. It's like there's a real um, lack of self-awareness when they talk about, you know, African-Americans and the Latinos, their sense of, oh, you know, they're not, you know, they're not like us, you know, in, 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 in the U.S. And in China, too, there's um, this, you know, great sense of, uh, I think of you know of of those people not somehow of being of them being the other and not like themselves and I don't really see any way out of that except for continued um, uh, exchange and communication I think it's only when you develop and I think the Chinese it's so important to develop a personal relationship um, with another person I mean with um, you know the new um, Trump's new ambassador, um, uh, <laughs> right? This idea of you know he's an, he's an old friend of China's. I think that really, I mean, whatever you may think of that, but I think that that um, that sort of personal relationships matter to the Chinese um, uh, an enormous amount, and um, so that and and I think that can only be you know a good thing for Chinese for Chinese. You know, youth to be ex exposed to um, to uh, you know to, to the other cultures outside of um, outside of China. And uh, right now, I mean, it's really predominantly the middle class and the upper class um, of Chinese who are able to study abroad. I mean, it's still um, very costly. And what I would love to see, and this you know really has to come, I think, with um, kind of economic changes, is when. Um, a greater percentage of Chinese um, uh, youth, you know, of all, you know, of, kind of from all economic stratas, are able to um, come, you know, leave China and see the greater world. Um, I think that would go a long way to really changing um, the next chi generation of Chinese perception of what you know the world outside of China is like. Wow. <laughs> Start with Joe, then Frank, then Steve. I'm Joan Kaufman from the Schwartzman Scholars Program, and um, I wanted to, uh, to uh, ask a question about the tightening up in the academic mm -hmm. sphere in China right now, which really is very much in contradistinction to China's kind of uh, thinking of itself as more of a global actor. I don't want to say global power as much as a global actor. China, Africa, the new Silk Route, all this stuff. China assuming its place in the world mm -hmm. and the outward-looking China, which is, um, you know, I think projected to some degree. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, I've spent a lot of time in China over the last 35 years, and I think one thing I've felt over the last, um, especially the last 20 years or so, has been the uh, ability to have open discourse in the academic space, mm -hmm. right? that it hasn't been controlled. Mm -hmm. But these, this sort of trend towards, you know, no foreign textbooks mm -hmm. and this this just a few days ago, party directive about you know tightening mm -hmm. up in the um, academic space. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems very much in contradistinction to the kind of wanting to know more about the world mm -hmm. and engage with the world more as a co-equal. So I just wanted to ask if you could say mm -hmm. something about that. If you think it's real for just putting the fear factor in there, like the porn and geolaw, things like that, wh where is this coming from and how real is it? And how significant is it in terms of China's actual ability to be a global actor? So. Right. I mean, yeah. I think that, I mean, I, I think that's a really great question, and I think um, the Chinese have always, you know, dating back from when, um, from the end of the Qing 
uh, dynasty to when China, when Chinese intellectuals realized that they needed to um, uh, learn kind of Western technologies and kind of, and um, to uh, you know strengthen themselves. This, there's this idea that we learn that we import. Um, skills and technologies from the outside world, but that we have to retain our Chinese core, that this is something fundamental to who we are, that we never give this up, but we can learn, you know, how ships are built, and we can learn, you know, um, what, you know, today, like why, you know, Apple is such a great company, that we, you know, kind of learn these, um, you know, these, you know, these extrinsic things, and then we bring that back and make China stronger. So I think the crackdown in the academic sphere has to do um, with the fear that somehow Chinese students, um, that, you know, the rising generation of Chinese students, um, you know, as they learn about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Western, you know, political science and philosophy and history, that somehow they might get confused about, you know, what we want to import, you know, back to China, the, the, this idea of democracy and, you know, kind of liberal values and, and universalism. I mean, um, for the Chinese government, I think that's quite frightening because if, you know, there's a greater buy-in among the younger generation for all these values, that really threatens, um, you know, the, the, the um, top political class. So um, I think this is, you know, the crackdown has to do with, well, you know, we, you know, we have to draw a very firm line about what we are learning from the West and what we're emphatically not learning from the West and what we will not be importing from abroad. So I think that it comes from that. And also, um, you know, this idea, you know, this, this, this interrogation and I think this quest for what the modern Chinese identity is um, preoccupies, I think, a lot of Chinese intellectuals and artists and, you know, writers. And for the Chinese government, um, what they do not want is this sense of this identity somehow, um, you know, no longer abiding by, you know, uh, uh, you know um, leadership of the Communist Party. I think um, they somehow want to kind of cut that off, you know, early on, so that we still know that whatever you know, whatever you young students learn, you know, whatever you, um, uh, whatever you find inspiring from the West, that it all has to be um, under the umbrella of the, you know, our glorious, you know, socialist leadership. So I think that's what you know. I think it's it's real fear. I think is what that crackdown comes down to about its threat to um, political uh, legitimacy. Yeah, and I would say in the um in the two frames of reference of the recent past. So I was in China in 1986, which was a really exciting moment to be on a Chinese campus. And it felt people had a tangible sense that they were able to talk about things more freely than they had been a year, two years, five years, definitely before. And that there was this kind of movement that the, that the trend line was toward more kinds of things being translated, more kinds of topics being open for discussion, and so on. And that trend continued until 1989, and then with the crackdown there was a, and the massacre, there was a, a drawing in. But then I think the same feeling from the mid-1990s up until about, um, about the Olympics, there was a sense that from year to year, if you went to China, and I'm sure you experienced this, each year the bookstores seemed to have a bit more that you could be, you know, books were being translated. You thought, wow, that's been translated. Hannah Arendt's to On Totalitarianism is for sale in a Communist Party-run country <laughs> in translation. 
Uh, George Orwell's 1984, which was first translated in the, in the 80s when it was not available in, in other parts of the communist world. And from, from sort of year to year, and the, the campuses after that, after the, the, the chill, after 89, there was, again, this warming trend and opening up. And what's really worrisome is that the last few years, there's been this, from year to year, there seems to be a redu reduction of these kinds of zones of freedom and zones of open discussion. And um, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in the, quite that terms of the con contradiction between the more global connectedness in many other ways and this. But one of the ways that you see perhaps the connection between those two things is that one of the things that's being most tightly controlled now is discussions of particular parts of the Chinese past. It used to be that there was very tight control of discussion of the Chinese present. That's never really been a completely free, free subject. But more parts of the Chinese past are being controlled to assert a particular vision of what Chinese tradition means and what the Chinese past means. And it's to, it does go along with the particular way that China is projecting itself to the world presenting the Chinese Communist Party as the natural inheritor of the Chinese tradition in a singular sense of this kind of quote-unquote 5,000 years of continuous civilization, Confucianism as the kind of uh, a core, a particular version of Confucianism at the core of that. And so having, um, I mean, it's very, it seems like a very specialized debate that only uh, Chinese historians would care about, but these fierce criticisms of the, the new Qing history in, um, in the West that posits the idea that the Qing dynasty, which was, was not a purely Chinese um, creation, it was partly influenced by ideas from another part of, the, uh, another part of Asia, the Manchu ideas, and the fact of, of certain parts about what has been part of China supposedly forever actually only becoming part of China under the Qing, like Xinjiang. I mean, I think that was, was kind of a warning sign that um, discussions of history were becoming politicized again in a way that would not have been surprising to people remembering the Cultural Revolution, but would feel like something that had been part of an earlier period, either in the 1980s or even around the turn of the century. It's still, it's a confusing and complicating moment. I mean, the fact that there are things like the Schwarzman Scholars, the fact that NYU, Shanghai, you can still on that campus in a certain setting discuss all kinds of things. But it's kind of a move to, now we can't even, t we can't talk, certainly we, we could never really talk of what you can say on Chinese campuses. Now it's, there's certain almost extraterritorial spaces <laughs> on Chinese campuses <laughs> that you can have a broader discussion, Hopkins, Hopkins and Nanjing and other places. The other thing related to this is, and this I think is a different contradiction, that the, the PRC, the, the government of the PRC desperately wants high-ranked universities to be in the international, um, you know, at an international ranking. But by squeezing Hong Kong, I think it's endangering some of the most vibrant academic spaces within um, the People's Republic of China. I think if, if the trend there continues to tighter control over Hong Kong, you won't have as many world-class academics who moving from a tenured, a tenured position 
at um, a Western institution to a tenured position in Hong Kong, which still very few people have done that move outside of the sciences. In social sciences, humanities, relatively few people have been making that particular move to, um, to mainland campuses, except in very sort of privileged star positions. But some were doing that to Hong Kong in the way that they do it to NUS with Singapore. But now you at least feel in Singapore, if it's controlled, the trend is toward at least slow liberalizing. On the mainland, if the trend is away from that kind of liberalizing, and if the trend in Hong Kong is away from that liberalizing, it may contradict the goal. Of course, part of the way China is dealing with that is creating their own ranking systems in which Chinese institutions are doing very well. <laughs> and if China's global role keeps rising, maybe those will get more and more um, kind of respectability. And I think there's, there's a creeping sign of that. So that's, this is one of the, you've put your finger on such mm -hmm. an interesting contradiction at this moment, but it definitely is. And the, the recent statements about asserting more control, very recent ones about asserting more control over universities. And Chris Buckley of the New York Times is one of the people I read most carefully and pay very close attention to, mentioned the number of standing committee members who were connected with those statements. So that it wasn't just wasn't just she, but this suggests that there's they're taking this very seriously. And it is it's a worrisome challenge. Now Frank Kale, United States China Exchanges. Um, I have a question about US China policy. In, uh, in the Trump administration. And the angle that I'm asking each of you to help us with is could you rehearse different uh, US-China policies in the perspective of <coughs> Trump, the <coughs> P.T. Barnum, salesman for whom everything has a price. Um, and on the other side, within the Trump camp, the Bolton factor, where um, the anti-China policy at every turn uh, will out for example, will be reinforced. And the fact that when Trump says the one China policy is on the bargaining table, uh, it shows um, at least two things. One, <coughs> his ignorance of how and how long and how rigorously the Shanghai communique and all that it represents and foretold for a decades-long stable policy on the one hand. On the other hand, the reality that uh, the One China policy, in my reading of the world, is one of any countries um, non-negotiables. So you have the 
the supreme negotiator for whom everything has a price, mm -hmm. and you have this policy, which has been shown. You won't let us into the United Nations? We'll wait. We'll wait. You don't, uh, well, you, you can think of other examples. So, could you rehearse some of the, the spectrum of policies that may emerge and what the implications might be? I think this is the part where we both say, <laughs> we're not political scientists. No, I think you've spelled out the the contradictory trends from the U.S. side of this particular moment um, of things pulling in these different directions, and even the the difficulty at the moment of treating the Trump administration to be as a coherent entity. I mean, we had last, a week ago, a week before this. Um, Pence and others saying on uh, after the phone call that this should not be interpreted as meaning that the one China policy is up for grabs. And then a week later, we had um, Trump himself saying the one child policy should be up for grabs. Uh, one China. The one China. One China. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew I was going to do that. Very, very tough. Thing. Keep separately. Very different. Very. One child policy is up for grabs. <laughs> That's uh, Yeah. So I think, and even you know, parsing the the selection of uh, Branstead as, uh, and then talk of Bolton being in the It's it's really uh, a confusing set of signals um, being sent right now, which is not not comforting. Mm -hmm. to people who want to have some sense of uh, the policy. And you should, and we should know. Which could be deliberate. Which could be deliberate to keep, to keep off balance. And uh, I think, I mean, the, 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 the people I'm reading and um, finding important to read on this issue are ones who say one of the, even, if, even in order, especially if you care about Taiwan and you admire some of the things that have been going on there. The way in which Taiwan, to some extent, is being thought of and used as a bargaining chip is not doing a, a service to Taiwan yeah. uh, as, as well. So I want to hear more from people in Taiwan for thinking about this from the perspective of Taiwan as a, as a place that is moving in really encouraging directions in lots of ways. Mm. And I think um, for I think, you know, for um, the Chinese government, for, you know, I think they were really, at the outset, you know, upon learning that Trump, um, you know, was really going to be installed in office, um, I think the Ch Chinese diplomacy is done, you know, through just this cultivation of a relationship, and of course it wasn't encouraging that um, we all of us knew so little about what the Trump presidency would look like and what his um, outlook would be um, with regards to Asia and China. Uh, but I think, you know, I think China really knew that it wanted to, you know, tread carefully and it wanted to, um, you know, strat 
strategize about where it could benefit from Trump's, you know, ignorance and bravado and uh, how it could really turn that into its advantage. But right now, the, the, the set of mixed signals that he's um, uh, sending is possibly kind of the worst thing that, um, that, uh, that, 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 that um, the Chinese uh, you know, could, um, be, could have hoped for, because then it doesn't allow the Chinese to proceed you know, with um, you know, what they regard what they regard as you know the the um, American attitude toward them, and then craft policies based on kind of what they perceive as the the the, um, the American outlook. So right now, I think it's a real it's a really you know trying moment for China because of how I mean confusing, frankly, um, uh, the you know Trump administration is you know presenting itself toward China. Steve Barclay, um, Hong Kong Economic and Trade Office. Um, first of all, just a comment. You were talking earlier about uh, the meritocracy in, mm -hmm. in the US. Um, I was on an out-of-town visit last week talking to uh, an American uh, governor of a state, which I will not uh, say which one, who had never heard of the word meritocracy and asked me to explain what it meant. Well, maybe not as uniform as you'd like to think. <laughs> well, I know you couldn't be talking about the governor of my state, because I think um, Jerry Brown would have recognized that. <laughs> I won't speculate on what the other one um, uh, yeah. I was also going to ask about what do you think that Mr. Trump is trying to achieve in relation to his actions and statements in relation to uh, China and Taiwan, and <laughs> there's more than one black box out there. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, and what do you think are the risks to the U.S. in terms of how China may react? So I think I think with all of these things, it's it's important to balance in in our minds the things that are very different about China and the United States and tensions between them, and also the connections between them and the in, entwinement. So I think on the economic on the economic front, while people will talk about risks on both sides, risks of what um, Trump could do. Uh, related to Chinese economy, risks of what China could do to the U.S. economy. The Chinese government needs for it, the Chinese government needs for its legitimacy right now to um, be able to at least have some degree of uh, economic growth. It, it, growth is slowing. The Communist Party for a while made the high growth rates a key part of its legitimation story. Another part of um, the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy story now is about projecting uh, Chinese influence, in, in Chinese influence growing greater and greater, and territory, if anything, going greater. So these things kind of clash with the, the U.S. situation, with Trump focusing both on South China Sea, which is that story of Chinese influence and 
and territory expanding, but also talking about the economy, um, which is the other. So I think there are great limits to what the Chinese Communist Party will do or will want to do related to the, to the economy, because given how intertwined the two economies are, it's very hard for them to do something that would hurt the Chinese economy without simultaneously hurting, hurt the American economy without simultaneously hurting the Chinese economy. So it's easiest to imagine both sides doing things at the symbolic level, which is what, to some extent, they've been doing. And then scarily, the other place to do things is via um, these tensions over things ranging from small specks of land to actual islands. Mm -hmm. That, uh, and that's very that's very worrisome. So I mean, it's it's. I almost wish it was easier to see how there could be economic um, steps taken, but economic steps taken are likely to ricochet back um, against the governments doing them. And so it's very worrisome. I mean, the, I, so I guess the, the nice scenario is it all just stays at the symbolic level. Mm -hmm. The very scary scenario is that it ends up being about um, skirmishes and planes that could and have in the past collided with each other and things like that over the islands. I think what's frightening is that um, Trump, you know, being, you know, who fashions himself as this, you know, freewheeling dealmaker, that he doesn't realize the historical significance of, of so much of what, you know, is now the Sino-American relationship and kind of the, um, the various agreements that, um, you know, that have been built to really, you know, preserve this very delicate balance. And, you know, when he throws out, you know, in an interview, this idea of, you know, well, you know, we, I can use this as a, as a bargaining chip. I think um, for the, for the Chinese, you know, it's, um, it puts them in a very uncomfortable spot because, you know, they feel compelled to respond, um, even if they think that, you know, this is a, this is, you know, this is the these are the words of a complete buffoon who may not, you know, understand their significance. But I think to really, um, to, you know, to, 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 to save face in a way, but also to, to, to really kind of stand by, um, you know, their positions, they have, they feel compelled to, 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 you know, respond forcefully in some way, because this is so, in the one China policy has been a kind of at the pinnacle of what, you know, how, how China sees itself. So even if, you know, these are, you know, the words, um, you know, uh, of a very ignorant idiot, um, China, China, um, it doesn't matter who says them, you know, um, the, the kind of person who says them. If someone, you know, if the U.S. president says them, then China feels, um, you know, feels the pressure to, um, to take them seriously. And there's another point of keeping in mind parallels as well as differences. We're used to thinking of Chinese governments caring a lot about saving face, but it's clear that Donald Trump cares very much about his own face and that part of the part of the very um, combustible thing going on is him trying to to react to criticism of, of, of his uh, Taiwan call by then upping things as a, mm -hmm. as a face-saving yeah. Twitter doesn't help. Twitter doesn't. In, a, in an era of, uh, yeah, with face-saving, Twitter doesn't help. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually a uh, My question is, uh, despite uh, those challenges, 
Uh, in what areas do you think that the two countries will have the best cooperation opportunity? Mm -hmm. And in the other areas, Thank you. The best, um, the best possible cooperation opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel off balance here because I was up until now, up until this election, what seemed the most promising area for potential cooperation was on climate change, and by far the most important area uh, for cooperation in a in a global uh, sense is is there. I mean, I think. This, this may sound kind of flip, but as tense as things are right now, it is easy to, it's actually still easy to imagine um, both sides liking a kind of state visit one way or the other in which there were all the stops pulled out for this kind of high level of, of, of ceremony. I mean, Trump, you know, Xi Jinping really enjoyed, it seemed, and got a lot of mileage out of riding the um, golden carriage out to Buckingham Palace when he was treated like royalty. There is a, the, the sort of imperial side to the two presidents could actually, you could imagine a way in which there were a summit where both of them, strong man to strong man, established some sort of um, tie. At the moment it's hard because there's a clashing, but this, we've seen things like this before um, could happen. That's not a very um, important form of cooperation, though. <laughs> I mean, I do think there has to be continued, both as, because both countries' economies are dependent yeah. on the other, I think there is going to have to be some way for a degree of cooperation there. About the infrastructure? Infrastructure, infrastructure development, okay, that's, that's something that you could find another parallel between uh, the two governments now, uh, or the government-to-be of Trump focusing on infrastructure, whether that's competing or, um, or a parallel. I think that's a good one to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, be I mean, like Jeff said, because, I mean, despite, you know, um, Trump's le electioneering talk about, you know, 45% tariffs, I think, I you know, the two economies are so interdependent that even if China feels the pain in the short term, I mean, I, I would hope that you know, um, you know, uh, Trump and his um, advisors would, would would recognize that it would not do the U.S. any favors to really um, to uh, punish China and in, in you know in any um, uh, you know really significant way because it's only going to, you know, bounce back to hurt the U.S. So in that way, you know, their, their, their interests are kind of tied to each other in such a, in such a way that, you know, cooperation would, you know, is really the only route that makes sense um, unless, you know, tempers flare and Trump does something on Twitter really, you know, unfortunate. John, last question. John Willett from the National Committee. How is history going to look back on President Obama and his China policy? I'm, uh, that's, that's, that's a great question. That's a tough one right away to, to answer. Because in, in a sense, I mean, the truth is that, of course, we look back on 
we look back on policies partly vis-a-vis -vis what came after as well as what came, came before. I don't, think, um, I don't think Obama's China policy will be seen as one of his um, more, effective, more effective ones. Um, I think there are all kinds of other things that I'm already feeling very nostalgic <laughs> about um, the Obama presidency um, for. But I think that, that I think, I mean, I think it may be looked back on as, as one of the last moments of a kind of belief in this notion that more engagement would somehow inevitably lead um, in the directions we were, we, were hoping, we were hoping for. I mean, it's possible that, uh, again, it may, but it, in another sense, it could be looked back to in part as um, if it played a role in getting China to be the kind of participant in climate change mm -hmm. agreements and things like that, that would be an enormously um, positive thing to have done. So I think there's a good chance it will be seen as a kind of mixed, mixed thing because of that. Yeah, that's good. All right, I think this discussion could go on, but our speakers have other obligations, as perhaps do some of the people in the room. So please join me in thanking our speakers.